So good to do communion together. Uh, I like to personally imagine um, Jesus introducing communion to the disciples for the first time and them just awkwardly trying to peel the... It's just, I don't know, brings me joy. I'm so thankful to be looking at God's word together this morning. And in 1 Peter especially, um, this is the first book of the Bible I ever read as a Christian, um, and it has been a constant encouragement to me throughout my walk. Just love, love, love this letter. Um, and I'm anxious to get into it, so let's pray together one more time, and then uh, we'll, we'll check it out. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we just ask for your help. God, it is not on my authority that I talk this morning. It is on your authority. It's on your word. So whatever is not of you, um, I pray that you would silence it in your people's hearts. God, but whatever is of you, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to understand you, and God, be changed by you, by your spirit, And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, As I've been spending time in 1 Peter over the last um, few weeks, there was a movie series that that kept coming to mind for me. Uh, The Bourne Identity. You guys remember that one? Uh, The main protagonist, Jason Bourne, is a CIA black ops uh, assassin. Right? Uh, But here's the thing. The movie begins, and uh, Jason is waking up on the table of a fishing boat. Uh, Fresh bullet holes in his body, um, some microchip that a stranger pulled out of his hip, and he has absolutely no idea who he is, uh, how he got there, or where he came from. He has total amnesia. And his sole purpose throughout the series of the movies uh, becomes his devotion to find out who he is and where he came from. Because this is what Jason knows. Until he understands his identity, he will never truly live. He will never be free. He will never be safe. He will never understand what his true purpose is unless he remembers the core identity of who he is. So begins Jason Bourne's hunt for his identity. In a similar way, Peter looks out at all of his fellow believers of Jesus throughout the regions, living very difficult, mysterious, often confusing lives wrought with suffering. Because of their union with Christ, they are no longer united with the world, but are at odds with it. And they have a very real spiritual enemy that's after their souls. They are, we are, aliens and exiles to the rest of the world, suffering as believers, grieved through a myriad of different trials and hardships, rejection from families, friends, and loved ones, martyrdom, belittlement, mocking, sickness, disease, depression, anxiety, slander, divorce, abuse, harassment, financial struggles, relationship struggles, work struggles, Burdened with the weight of our loved ones who don't know Jesus. Sin, the constant assault by our enemy with lies and accusations. 
We're covered in spiritual bullet holes, as it were. And while we don't have uh, amnesia collectively, you've got to admit, this life can be pretty confusing sometimes. I mean, didn't Jesus promise fullness of life if we follow him? This Christian life doesn't seem to make sense. Unless, unless you understand your identity in Jesus. Unless you understand what he is doing and what your guaranteed hope is. Unless you understand your reborn identity. See what I did there? And that is exactly what Peter is doing. He's saying, listen, exiles, know who you are. You have been born again. You're a new creation. You're no longer made for this world. It makes sense that you're not satisfied here. This isn't home for you. And all the sufferings you're going through, they're not random and pointless. But your father is actually over all of them. And he's doing something in you through them refining your faith so that you can be with him forever. Know the guaranteed hope you have, Christian. This time of suffering is minuscule because you have a forever, imperishable inheritance waiting for you, kept for you, guarded by God himself. Remember who you are and what your future is, Christian. Peter reminds them of their identity and their hope in order to help them make sense of their lives in this broken world, as well as to inform them how to live in this broken world. Last week, we saw our call to live holy lives, and this too is rooted in our identity. Be holy because God is holy. The God who rebirthed you, who adopted you into his very own family, is holy. That too. Like he has, he has set you apart from the rest of the world, Christian. You are different. And because you're now his children, he has made you clean, righteous, a new creation. Filled with his spirit, different from the world. It's who you are. It's in your spiritual DNA. You can't escape it. So Peter says, act like it. I do this with my children when they're fighting and, and they hit each other. I say, Aiden, Nora, Lucy. Yes, Lucy's a hitter too. I say, kids. Myrons don't hit each other. Now, what am I saying when I say that? Am I saying if you hit each other, you're out of the family? Right? Out of the house until you get it together. No, I'm saying, kids, you're Myrons. You are members of this family together forever. So, act like it. Behave according to your identity. And this is Peter's reasoning. It's not you are in God's family because you live holy lives. It's live holy lives because you're in God's family. The being always comes before the doing. 
The call to live and behave a certain way on this earth comes from our gospel identity. God has made it truth of you through faith in Jesus, and now the call is to more and more behave like it is. Now I say all that because our text this morning is following the same reasoning. Peter's going to call us to live a certain way as God's people because it's already true for us in Jesus. So open up God's word and and look at the text with me, starting at verse 22. The first part of Peter's sentence begins like this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And I got to say, at first glance, this is sort of a, a funny way to talk to me. It's like listening to a farmer from Cork talk. It's like, I think I understand what he said. Because at first glance, this sort of looks like this is something we do, right? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. But you guys are students of his word, so, so let's think about this. We've actually heard something similar to this recently in Romans, uh, where Paul talked about the obedience of faith, right? So obedience of faith, Obedience to the truth. Okay, these are two Jewish guys speaking to churches with Jewish Christians in them who before Jesus would have been perfectly happy saying the same phrase without the faith and truth part. Like, having purified your souls by your obedience, right? He phrases it like this to make a point. Brothers and sisters, We don't bank on being made pure through our obedience anymore. If it is by obedience, it's obedience to faith, obedience to the truth, obedience to the gospel that says you can only be made pure through Jesus. And we know that even our faith isn't to our credit, but Ephesians 2.8 says that our faith is a gift from God. So to put it simply, Peter is essentially saying having been purified through your faith in Jesus. Having been made pure through your faith in Jesus. Peter is rooting us in our gospel identity again. You've been made pure. You've been counted clean. You're not banished to the edge of the camp anymore because of your uncleanness. God has made you clean. You have access to the innermost part of the camp with the rest of God's people in God's very presence. Your souls have been made pure. Now here's where things get interesting. To what end? What are we made pure for? Peter goes on, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love for a sincere brotherly love are we okay with that statement like we expect Peter to say you've been made pure for a sincere love of God or you've been made pure for a sincere love for Jesus but here he says you've been made pure for the purpose of sincerely loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Now, one of our challenges when we listen to God's word as 21st century Westerners, as we often interpret it as 21st century Westerners. When, when Peter employs this brother language, it bears tremendous cultural weight. One of the books the elders are going through right now is called When the Church Was a Family. And in it, this New Testament scholar is making the point that when um, the New Testament writers and Jesus himself use family language, right, brother and sister language, it means something far richer than we perceive. See, as Westerners, we hold very individualistic values. We may value family, but ultimately, we base our life decisions and purpose on what we want to do individually. My life decisions revolve around me at the end of the day. Where I live, what I do for work, how I spend my time. So we hear, love your fellow Christian like a brother, and I think, all right, I guess I'll text him a couple times a year and maybe see him on Christmas. But in their society, life revolved around your family. Where you live, what you chose to do for a living, how you devote your time aren't decisions you make as an individual, but you make them based on your family. What is best for your family? It was a group value system, and family was the most important group. And there was no more important family relationship than between brothers and sisters. Sibling relationship took precedence over everything, including your spouse. And regrettably for the Israelites in Jesus' day, it often took precedence over God. Which is why it sent out the shockwaves that it did when Jesus said things like, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple." Or when Jesus' mother and brothers approached him and stretching out his hand towards his disciples said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, Jesus wasn't saying family is not important. Jesus was saying you're revolving your life around the wrong family. I came to adopt you into your true family, into God's family, the church. That same devoted, first priority, life-centered around kind of love that you have for your earthly brothers and sisters, I want you to love that way for your, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see the early church live this out. That same family value system they had is now lived out as God's people together in community, devoting themselves to one another, sharing money, property, and belongings, basing their life decisions about on what is best for God's people, not individuals, putting their spiritual family's needs ahead of their own. So I want us to get this. When Peter says, we have been made pure for brotherly love, He's not talking about that estranged blood relative that you talk to once a year. It's brotherly love like the early church knew it. 
It's devoted, of first importance, sharing of life together, priority over yourself kind of love. And we are called to love one another that same way, church, because this is our core identity. Peter doubles down on this gospel identity in verse 23. He says, we love this way since or because you have been born again. Born again into a new family. See this in God's word now. Verse 23 again, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. See, in your first life, you were born of your earthly family, of your father's perishable seed, and you were devoted to that family. But now, through faith in Jesus, you've been born again into a new family. God's family, born of imperishable seed of God's word, and now you're devoted to it. And I love it when biblical authors define what they mean, so I don't have to. Peter says in verse 25 that this word that we are born of is the good news that was preached to you. It's the gospel. Through belief in the gospel, you've been born again into God's family. This is your gospel identity, believer. This is what is true of you. And because it's already true of you, now we're called to actually behave like it. Peter is saying, you have been reborn into God's family in order to love God's family. So, act like it. You have been reborn into God's family in order to love God's family. So, love like that's actually true. Yes, you have been reborn to love your Heavenly Father. Amen. You have been reborn to love Jesus, your older brother. Amen. That's what it's all about. But, you have also been reborn to love your brother and sister sitting in the chair next to you. I want this to be abundantly clear. One of the things that this passage teaches us is that a Christian cannot say, I love God, but I don't love the church. I have a relationship with God, but I have no interest in a relationship with other Christians. Or even, I'll love God with all my heart, but with his people, with the church, I'll just love with minimal effort. You can't do it. God won't have it. You cannot separate your love of God from your love of his people. And the reason you can't is actually really, really good news for us. The Bible teaches us that through a simple faith in Jesus, we become united with Jesus. We are in Christ. Jesus sees us as so united with him, so connected in him, so identified with him, that he says, Whenever, whatever you do to one of my children, you do unto me. If you hate one of my children, you're hating me. If you love one of my children, 
You're actually loving me. The reason we can't say we love God, but not his people, is because of how much he loves his people. How much he has made himself one with his people. Isn't that awesome? That's incredibly good news for us. Man, you're not like the rest of the world, church. You've been born again into a different family. God's family. And this gospel identity is why we need to love one another. And it's also how we love one another. It shows us what kind of family we are. Peter says back in verse 22, You have been made pure through faith in Jesus for a sincere brotherly love. Sincere. That is, free from pretense, or deceit, or hypocrisy. It's genuine. It's honest. It's authentic. And I find it incredibly fascinating that Peter says the defining principle of love that this family has, that differs from what the world has, is sincerity. Authenticity. We don't fake it church. We don't act one way with each other, but a different way at home. We are real in our relationships. We are sincere. Peter says, therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Listen, pure doesn't mean perfect here. It means honest. Love one another earnestly, seriously, passionately, from an honest heart. Listen, the church alone has the freedom, grace, and power to love one another better than any other people in the universe. Because God has counted us clean, pure, We have been freed up to be the most sincere, most authentic, most honest, sacrificial, affectionate, gracious community in the world. Think about it this way. If I haven't been counted clean, if God hasn't dealt with my sin and he hasn't given me his approval, right, I'm naturally going to be inclined to hide my true self to you. I'm going to put on my best show when I see you. I'm going to show you all my good bits and I'm going to hide the bad ones. Because I'm still living for man's approval. And I'm afraid of what you'll think of me if you see the real me. So I'll show you the best of what I've got. And so when I go to love you, it's not sincere. It's not earnest. It's not pure. But think about how the gospel has freed us up to be a different kind of family than the world. See, because I've been fully accepted by God just as I am, and all of my imperfect, unamazing self, I'm now freed up to be my fully authentic, sincere self to you. Because I have nothing to hide from you. My sin has been dealt with. 
I can confess to you. I can show you my weakness. And nothing's at stake. Because my judge has already dealt with it. I don't need to earn your approval. Because the king of the universe has already given me his. And I know that I'm not the only messy, imperfect one in this family. Because to be a follower of Jesus is to admit that you're so messed up, you need Jesus to save you, right? Like, this is what defines us as a people. Why in the world would we fake it? Our gospel identity in Jesus frees us up to behave like a completely different kind of family than the world. And to love one another like a completely different kind of family. But is this always the kind of family we look like? And is it always our representation to the world? I should hardly say so. Man, it's so easy in this world, in this life, to behave toward one another as if this isn't our gospel identity. As if this isn't true of us. See, my unbelief in what God has declared to be true of me causes me to act insincerely toward you. I hide my true self. I self-promote myself to you. I tell you all my best sides and not my faults. I restrict my love out of fear and self-interest. I behave like I would if the gospel weren't true for me. My sinful flesh tells me it's not true for me. Satan tells me it's not true for me. The world tells me that it's not true for me and that I should hide. So to behave like a gospel family together, we need to know and be reminded of what is true for us as God's family, like Peter does for us here. Peter continues in chapter 2, because all of this is true for us, because we have been reborn into God's family in order to love God's family, so, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Can you see the theme in this list? It's not just a random grouping of sins to avoid. This list is a list of community killers. These are sins that keep the family of God from loving like the family of God. Now, if sermons were allowed to be two hours long, I would define each of these and discuss how they inhibit us, but they're not. So I'll just say, we put these away because of what God has already done for us, but it takes intentionality. It takes intentionality and work to actively remove them, right? Like it takes intentionality to remove bitterness. You have to ask for forgiveness. You have to forgive. It takes intentionality to remove dishonesty. So let's work by God's spirit to intentionally remove them as his people. Now you might be saying, Will, this devotion to the family of God thing sounds great, but you don't understand these people are difficult to love. I mean, I'm, 
pouring myself out. But nobody's loving me back. Have you met these people? I would fully love them, like gospel family, but fill in whatever excuse you want. Now, thanks for bringing this up because it fits into my perfect or my sermon perfectly here. I would just first say, like, understand the audacity that it takes to say that before God. You're essentially saying, God, I know you've commanded me to love this way, but you haven't provided the right people for me to do it with. Understand that God has sovereignly placed you exactly where you are with the exact imperfect people around you in this family for a reason. We can all agree that God is is sovereignly working to sanctify us in this life, right? To make us more and more like Jesus. Well, one of the ways that he does that is through his spirit, intimately walking with you through the same steps as Jesus. What kind of gospel family did God put around Jesus? The disciples, right? The very imperfect, flawed, messy disciples. Jesus trusted his father's will and he poured himself out for the gospel family that his father gave him. Jesus gave his time, his heart, his affections to a people that often didn't reciprocate it, weren't always thankful for it, were most often clueless about what he needed, who abandoned him when he needed it most. And in doing so, Jesus exemplified love in its highest, purest, most beautiful form. Man, it's one thing to love someone that deserves it, right? But it's a different thing to pour out your heart, to devote yourself to and lay down your life for a family that doesn't. Listen, church, God loves you so much and he wants to make you more and more like Jesus. So, he has sovereignly placed the specific, flawed, messy, imperfect people around you to do it with as we learn to love one another like Jesus. Not to mention, it might just be helpful to to consider that you might be the difficult one to love, right? We forget about that part. Now, I'm not talking about some toxic, manipulative church environment. That kind of stuff has to be brought to light. Leaders removed, and sometimes we have to leave churches because of it. Some of you may have been hurt by church in the past. And if that's the case, I would just encourage you to share that with leadership here so that we can try to meet you in that process. Because those are wounds that Jesus wants to heal. Just know that it's not going to be a perfect church on earth that he heals you through. Because there isn't one. This is gospel family. It is messy to live like that's actually true. But it's also really beautiful. And it's God's will for us. It's his will for your sanctification, for your good, for our witness to the world, and for our endurance to the end in this difficult, broken, hostile world. 
Peter gives us one more element by which we are to live out our gospel identity as God's family together in this world. How does this family grow up together? How do we grow? Let's look at our last two verses. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't know if any of you have been hanging around any newborn infants lately, so uh, let me just remind you. They are the most helpless, needy creatures in the world. I mean, these things can't do anything on their own. 100% dependent beings. And the moms here especially know they're selfish too. Right? Like, they don't care about your sleep schedule. And all they want from you is milk. And the only way that they know how to get it is to cry for it. I'm hungry! One in the morning. I'm hungry! Four in the morning. I'm hungry! As soon as you fall asleep for a nap in the afternoon because you didn't sleep all night. All day. I'm hungry! I'm hungry! I'm hungry! And so you feed them to stop them from crying, but also because, you know, if you don't, that they will die. And God says, that's you! That's you! We are helpless, needy, dependent infants that need God's pure spiritual milk or we die. The pure spiritual milk is referring to God's word that he just referenced above, right? We are born again from God's living and abiding word and we are sustained and nourished from God's living and abiding word. And Peter says, long for God's word like newborn infants Cry out for it. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And man, Peter's not talking about baby immature Christians. He's talking about all Christians. Been a Christian for seven days? Newborn infant. Been a Christian for 70 years? Newborn infant. You need God's word to grow. Youth, TikTok will never sustain you. Instagram will never sustain you. Likes on Facebook or Meta, whatever it's called now, will never sustain you. Netflix will never sustain you. The news will never sustain you. The things of this world cannot sustain you because you are no longer of this world. You've been born again. You are a different kind of infant. You need spiritual milk. You need God's word. Peter says, this is what sustains us if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Which is there in part to make us ask ourselves, have you tasted that the Lord is good? It's really easy to be around a gospel family Maybe even grown up in a Christian home and you've been taught that the Lord is good. You've heard other people talk about how the Lord is good. But have you tasted it for yourself? My favorite theologian is the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. 
he once put it like this. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Just as there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. You can hear someone talk about the sweetness of honey and think that you have an understanding, but it's not until you taste the honey on your lips that you fully understand the loveliness for yourself. And so Peter's encouragement is, none of this will mean anything to you unless you taste that the Lord is good yourself. And if you've tasted that the Lord is good, don't turn to something lesser to sustain you. I'm a fool when I wake up in the morning and flip on my phone and go to the news instead of God's word. Because I've tasted what God's word does to me. <laughs> now, if God's word is something for you where it's like, man, I want to read it more, but I have a really hard time understanding it, or I don't even know where to begin, like, that's okay. We've all been there. First, I would just encourage you to pray earnestly for God to help you understand it. This is a spiritual book. The Bible says it can only be understood with spiritual eyes. But he has freely given us his spirit. And this dad wants to feed you. Second, let's remember that this command is happening within the context of gospel community. You might be struggling to enjoy God's word because you're trying to do it all on your own. God means for our gospel family to be sustained from his word together. So, ask for help. Ask someone to study the Bible with you. And man, there are some great, simple Bible studies that can be really helpful to go through as well. Just don't be ashamed if it's hard. Don't try to do it on your own. Again, God has said it in his word and we all know it firsthand. This life is hard. We're aliens here. We don't fit in with this world because this isn't our home. It's a life filled with trials, hardships, suffering. And we have a real spiritual enemy that's making war against our souls but you've been given a means to faithfully endure to the end, church, your brothers and sisters in Jesus. You have been born again into God's family in order to love God's family, being sustained by his word together. And man, if I could give you one practical way to do this, church, it would be this. If you want to faithfully endure to the end as a follower of Jesus in this world, and I think this is so essential, Men, find a couple of guys, two or three men that take the Lord seriously, that will see you to the end. Women, find two or three godly women that will see you to the finish line. I'm not talking about surface level friendships where you only chat about sports or your favorite shows. Like you need Christians to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Pure does not mean perfect. It means honest. 
Men, be fully known with a couple of men. Women, be fully known with a couple of women. You have an enemy that is making war against you, and you need a couple of godly men, a couple of godly women, to go shield to shield with, to make it to the end. If you don't have that yet, pray for it. Ask God for it. Start seeking it out with other believers. Man, I have my couple of guys, and I don't know where I would be without them. They know me fully, every secret laid bare. They know my struggles, they know my doubts, they know my personalities, they know my, my patterns. And we are faithfully devoted to one another to encourage each other, challenge each other, point to God's word together, remind one another of who we are in the gospel, devoted as brothers to see each other to the end. This life is difficult, but it's also the most incredible reality you could imagine. Do you know what makes the Born Identity such an intriguing movie? Because it's Matt Damon. Yeah, yes, it's, it's Matt Damon. But it's because the identity he is discovering is so intriguing. He's a black ops, uh, a black ops assassin, right? Like, that's really cool. If he was a postman, that would be a completely different movie. I can say that because I used to be one. It's a boring job. But church, our identity is not boring. Man, we are kids of the most powerful being in the universe. Princes and princesses of the king of kings. We literally walk around with the maker of heaven and earth inside of us by his spirit. As he calls us into the most important mission in the world. And we do that with each other as a family. Like, that's not fantasy. That's reality. It's incredible. It's incredible. Church, you have been reborn into God's family in order to love God's family. So, let's pray and ask God to empower us to actually love like that's true. Father God, Apart from you, we can do nothing. God, we just thank you for this reality that, that you did not leave us alone on this earth. But not only did you save us, but you gave us your very own spirit. And you gave us a family of brothers and sisters filled with your spirit. God, we ask would you fill us with your love for each other? It's the spirit of Jesus that lives in us. And I pray, God, would you increase our love for one another? Let it abound in each other. And I pray that our, uh, our family relationship would grow deeper. It would grow truer. It would grow more honest. It would be more sincere. I pray you would teach us what that looks like. I pray you would help us to grow up in your word together as your family. And we thank you for being our dad who loves us forever. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.